Attention men, are you wanting to break free from porn or other unwanted sexual behaviors, but finding it seemingly impossible to quit? If so, we can help. My name is Jonathan Darty, the founder of Gateway to Freedom. This three-day workshop is for any man who wants to overcome any kind of unwanted sexual behavior. So whether you're married, single, or divorced, this powerful and proven intensive weekend will help you uncover what is at the root of your struggle and discover the man God always created you to be. Space is limited, so call us today at 210-822-8201 to register. That's 210-822-8201 or visit bebroken.org slash gtf. Good day, listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. We're glad to have you with us. My name is Jonathan, and we've got back with us a special guest uh, all the way from uh, the East Coast. We've got Eddie Caparucci with us. So, Eddie, welcome back. Thank you, Jonathan. It's always great to be here. You know what? It was interesting, Eddie. I was looking at uh, today, I was just looking at the notes on like, when's the last time we had you on it? Can you believe it was actually the end of 2018? I can't believe like in a whole year had already passed before we were able to get you back on the program. So, uh, you know, it's probably too long, but um, welcome back. We're glad to have you back on here. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be back here, but I, I, that kind of blows me away. It did not seem like it was that long ago. Yeah. I mean, it just seemed like it was only yesterday, but that's how time flies. Well, and I know, I know this year for this last year for you, especially flew by because, because of this, your, your new book going deeper, uh, subtitle is how the inner child impacts your sexual addiction. And that's really what I want us to be um, unpacking this time around, because the last time we had you on here, uh, we talked about, you know, key reasons for why guys, you know, develop a sexual addiction. Um, but this resource wasn't done yet. And so what I would love to do is be able to begin to unpack this. But I want to start by asking you to define some terms for us. Because I look at this subtitle especially, and I see that, how the inner child impacts your sexual addiction. So let's start backward first. Can you give us a definition of sexual addiction, just to help kind of our listeners to understand what are we talking about when we're talking about sexual addiction? Because I think we take it for granted that people might know what we're talking about when we say that term. I, I agree with you. I think we do. Um, it's, it's a term that's being used all over the place right now. And, and from a clinical standpoint, we consider a sexual addiction uh, based on several factors. One, um, sex slash or pornography, depending whether it's a pornography addiction, has now taken a stronghold on someone's life. It is uh, now seeping into their relationships or maybe lack of relationships is seeping into perhaps their workplace, their church life, many other areas. Plus what we're also seeing is the idea that they are engaging in very compulsive acts, which in many cases are extremely destructive, you know, whether it be just for themselves and the uh, neurochemicals uh, neurochemistry of the brain, or if it is in regard to pain caused in a relationship, the loss of work or ministry, um, 
it is something that becomes very devastating because it is now out of control. The obsession for sex, the need to be driven for sex cannot be controlled. The funny thing about that is it really has nothing to do with sex, but I'm sure we'll talk about more of that later on. Yeah, and I would say too, I think one of the other things that's broadly used to help define just addiction is that um, uh, the person continues the behavior despite negative consequences, right? So even though relationships are getting destroyed, a job is lost, or maybe even there's negative health issues, it's like the person continues with the behavior. And that's when, that's a clear sign that somebody is addicted, right? And we also see the escalation of behavior in many cases. So what may have started out as pornography now moves to perhaps chatting with someone online or then moving to video conferencing, or perhaps even now we're using hookup apps and actually meeting people. Because what happens at some point, we reach a level of tolerance and what we are doing at that point no longer gives us that sense of euphoria, that rush that we're still looking for. So therefore, I need to try something different. Yeah. Well, now let's try to define another term. And it might take a little bit longer because I think that's really what you unpack throughout this book. But just that term, inner child. For one thing, I just have to say that I think some sometimes like my, my just sort of knee-jerk response to that that term inner child is I'm like, Oh my goodness. Are we, are we going into like psycho babble territory? Like, is this, is this some kind of crazy, you know, inner child? Doesn't that almost sound mystic? You know, it's like, so how would you help a person understand what you mean when you're talking about a person's inner child? Well, I'll start off with a very simple characteristic and then we'll drill down. But this one is a key. The inner child is a storage unit for our past emotional distress. Mm. Right? So, so you, that point comes across, I, I would guess, Jonathan, right? Yeah. That's what it is. It is the storage unit of past emotional distress. The inner child is caught in this time warp where negative events have happened to them, uh, to us as children, adolescents, and teenagers. And because he's surrounded by negativity, he lives in this constant state of fear that emotional pain is going to happen again. One of the events that has happened in the past is going to reoccur. And the thing that this kid wants, he only wants one thing. He wants comfort. He wants comfort. He wants a sense of peace. And the reason being for that is because when, he, when we were young, whoever is dealing with this, no one was there to teach us how to deal with our emotional distress and pain. They weren't there to to tell us, hey, you know what? I've been there. I know what it's like. Your feelings are justified. And because we don't hear that, we need to now figure out, okay, what's the solution to dealing with this discomfort? I'm being bullied. I don't know what to do with it. Well, A kid not having a lot of um, worldly experience and also using more of his limbic system and being more emotionally based in thinking is going to come up with the solution of, oh, I just won't think about it. I'm just going to go find something to distract myself and run away. And that's what they do. 
And we wind up taking that into our adult world, that same defense mechanism, and we still wind up using it today. So he, and, I, and I think one of the things we're going to discover too here, right, is that is that 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 container, so to speak, as you call it, like it's 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 brought into our adulthood, but yet we because it hasn't been what we have in that container hasn't been dealt with in healthy ways. It's then going to ha- manifest itself in a lot of different, um, maybe unhealthy and damaging ways throughout our adulthood, right? So, so for instance, uh, one of the ways that I thought of it when you were saying it's like a container for your past emotional hurts and everything was, isn't it amazing how sometimes you can see a 40 or 50-year-old man re-enter into his mother's house and almost revert to being like a 10-year-old? around his mother, like just without any thought whatsoever. And I sometimes think of that and I think, yeah, it's, it's like that parent child dynamic never matured past his childhood, which probably means there's pain, there's wounds, there's all kinds of things that are there that it was never able to mature into a place where now they are mother and son as adults and they can be friends. It's always, mom and son as mom is over and son is under kind of, is that, is that fair to say that that's kind of what you're talking about, about the the receptacle or the container for? Exactly. So for, to take your one step further, that man walks into his mother's house and he is triggered. Mm. Okay. The kid is picking out things of that storage unit and it is very distressful for him. And what's happened is now the guy, okay, how do I deal with mom? I can't deal with mom as an adult. I have to deal with mom as, as I'm a child and therefore immediately just regresses in front of, of yeah. her. Again, they're all defense mechanisms that may serve, they had served us well in our youth, but they do not work in our adult world, in our adult life. Yeah. So let me, so let me take another step back. So that helps with definition in terms of sexual addiction, inner child, but let me back up before we actually get into kind of unpacking the, the, the inner child children that you uh, address in this, in this book, what was the motivation for writing the book in the first place? Like what caused you to believe this is necessary for people who are men who are dealing with a sexual addiction to have to understand this in, in order for them to get well? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And there are several different factors that were involved in it. First and foremost is over the years, what I was seeing were a lot of individuals who were coming into my practice who had been with other therapists, have been to two, three therapists on their own. They've tried numerous things to be able to rid themselves of this disorder. And in my practice, I came to understand that there is just, for me and what I've seen, the answer to one question that is so critical and important in this and to be able to manage this disorder, and that is why. Why has sex and or porn taken such a stronghold on my life? Mm -hmm. Why am I so obsessed with this that I need it and I say I, I, I just can't do without? Why am I willing to continue to inflict 
pain and hurt on myself as well as others, even though I know, you know, this is not healthy for any of us, but yet I can't stop. To me, the why question is so critical. And, you know, it's really funny, Jonathan, because, you know, in our training as uh, counselors, we are taught to stay away from the why question. Because when you, when you ask the why question, people think it's make, you're making an accusation. Why are you like that? And, but yet here, what it does, it provides people with insight. It's insight about themselves, about how they got hardwired the way they did. And I believe that if I know why I do the things I do, that I have a better chance of being able to change my thinking, my emotions, and my behavior. And that was the whole rationale there, to give men another option uh, for therapy, but one that I think, and this is what you got the title of the book, goes deeper. Yeah. And I think that is essential because it's important, because even if a counselor is not asking the why question, you can be certain the addict is. They're asking of themselves. Yeah, and the spouses as well if they're married. So so it's kind of like at some point, if you're going to provide actual help to a sexual addict, you have to get to the why question. Now, I do think we have to always be, um, you know, uh, careful, if that's the right word, in trying to make a person think that we're going to find the exhaustive, comprehensive, definitive answer to the why question, because I think human beings are way more multi-layered and complex than a singular answer to that question. And but, I think what, but I think what you've done here is you've been, you've been able to open up a vast uh, territory for them to explore that to this point really usually isn't something that they've been asked to explore. Right. Yeah. That's why we have nine kids because yeah. it is comprehensive. This is all gray. As you know, John, John, you've been in this field for a long time and, and you have your own story. You know that there's nothing black and white here. You know, right. it, this is, you know, there's all gray, especially when it comes to the idea of what happened. Why, why am I where I am? And why do I continue to do these insane things although I know that they are not good for me and they're not healthy for the people who I say I love and who you do love. But this, the inner child recovery process, now lends that opportunity for people to do the insight to give them the answers they need. And for me, you know what that, that's also about? It's about growth. Yeah. I'm growing. And as we'll talk about later on, the whole program is not just about ridding someone of the disorder which we're not doing anyway. We're learning how to manage it, how to stay one step ahead of it. But also it's about transformation of the heart. Yeah. So let's talk about when, you know, a guy comes to you and says, okay, I got a sexual addiction. I'm, I'm admitting that. I mean, obviously you've, you, you got to get to that point if you're actually going to provide any real help for somebody, right? They've got to get to that point of saying, okay, I know I need help. Now, where do you start with taking a guy into this, inner child recovery process? Because you talked about nine kids, right? And in the book, you outlined kind of nine different uh, inner child, um, uh, I guess you could say categories, so to speak. So where do you take a guy? How do you get started? 
Well, first and foremost, you know, after, of course, we do our intake session where we're learning about him, we're learning about, you know, what are the issues regarding their, their addiction, because everybody's different, their stories are different. Um, talking a lot about how, because we're also trying to say, hey, you know what, you have to be there to help your wife heal in a way too. You got to make sure that when she wants to, you know, grieve, that you are allowing her to do that. And more importantly, you're not allowing your emotions to trump her emotions. So she gets upset and now you're upset because you feel guilt or you feel shame. We can't be doing that. So I, I teach them a lot about that stuff too at this point in time. But when we get to starting to dig in um, and we begin looking at what uh, the, I call them the cast of characters. And basically that is parents, siblings, um, peers, other people in authority that may have at some point in time caused, you know, distress that may have scarred them. So we're going to start looking at that. But even before I do that, what I do is I give them this little brief synopsis of the nine different children. I mean, it's just a paragraph on each one of them. And I just say, I want you to take, you know, 10 minutes and tell me, do you see yourself in any of these? And sure enough, you know, I leave the room, they sit there, they, and I come back, and they're like, oh my gosh, I, I, yeah, I see myself in anywhere from three to all nine. And then we just talk about it for a little while. Okay, so why, why did you resonate with certain kids? And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to plant the seed in their mind right now that this is the kind of work we're going to be doing. This is going to be a little bit different than anything you may have done before. Because what we're really looking for is, what we're trying to gain is knowledge. It's knowledge about, again, how am I hardwired? And as they start to see these you know, characters in front of them and to learn about how they differ, and now all of a sudden it's like, and I, I've, I've heard this numerous times, it's like, oh my gosh, you know what? All these things are popping into my head and I, my, and I really, I think all of a sudden, I, I think I, we may be on the right path already. I mean, and we're talking about the first, second session. I'm like, okay, slow down. <laughs> it's like, right. but we don't want to rush through this thing. That's not what it's about. But it shows there's a level of excitement. And most people don't really get excited about therapy. But there's a level of excitement that's involved in this because, again, you are, you're getting the answers to questions that have frustrated you for years, if not decades. Well, as you're saying that, one of the things that comes to mind is the, the, the value of diagnosis, right? Because there is, there, is, there is far more chaos and pain and confusion when we don't have, like we can't put a finger on what we're actually dealing with, right? Because then you don't know, like, well, what do we do next? And what I'm hearing you say is this is helping guys to kind of put a finger on this is where I've, I have need. This is where things are starting to connect. This is my diagnosis. And I, and I love what you said earlier when we talked about the definition of sexual addiction, right? Is that within that, the reality is, is that a sex addiction isn't actually really even about sex. And I, I, I hear in what you're saying and giving them the kind of this analysis and starting to give them the, uh, the, the kids, you know, and their different descriptions that then they can start to see what is actually needing to be addressed 
rather than the symptoms and the outcomes of, of behavior. So can you, can you give us a quick rundown of the names of the kids? Like, can you tell us what the, yeah, would you want me to just run through all n- uh, nine names and then we'll go back to them? Or well, I think it'd be helpful just to just for okay. our listeners to be able to know, like, hey, when you talk about these these nine kids, the inner child, you know, what are how do right. you describe okay. them? How do you name them? I'll do that. I'll take them. We'll take them one at a time, and I'll I'll um, walk you through it. So first one is the bored child. Okay, these are and what I tried to do in the book was to set up examples of what may have been the environment that that child was raised in. This way, give people a sense of, oh yes, that was very similar to mine. Now, some people may have other um, examples, and I put this in the book. I said, I don't list every single environment. I couldn't. I mean, it'd be a long book doing that. So therefore, I said, don't, you know, be open to what's going on here. But for the most part, the board child raised in an environment that offers little in the way of positive interaction among their family members, okay? So even if they're surrounded by people, they feel very isolated and alone. There's not a lot of emotional bonding and connection in here. So they learn to entertain themselves. um, And over time, they learn that, you know what, they feel more comfortable being by themselves than with others. But at some point, this kid, whether, again, you know, as a child, adolescent, or teenager, they stumble across sex or they find sex. And then that offers this level of stimulation that they've never seen in their life. This is like mind boggling for them. And with that, and usually what happens most times when a kid stumbles across sex is the first time it's kind of shock at all. Like, oh my gosh, what is this? This doesn't look right. But then there's a fascination about going back to it again and again. And after a while, it's just like, I need this. This, this is like life-changing for me. And that's where you wind up starting to see the addiction yeah. start to play in, in, in place. They're looking for that stimulation. Um, the next child is what's called the unaffirmed child. Now, these are folks who grew up with either one of two things. Uh, one, they had little in the way of praise that was given to them, or they received a quite a constant stream of criticism. And you would think that, okay, the criticism is probably more devastating than the lack of praise. But in actuality, lack of praise can be just as harmful to someone. Because again, it's like I'm not, you know, well-received. People don't seem to respect me. They don't value me. And we all have to feel valued. It's really important for us. So what's the result? The result becomes low self-worth with these individuals. And so therefore their quest is going to be to seek affirmation and to be desired. The unnoticed child, the third one, again, these are kids who growing up, they never felt they belonged. And again, you go back to what are one of the key core things that a child needs for healthy development. And that is to feel that they belong. Mm-hmm. And these folks didn't. Um, they felt they always had to chase people. They had to chase their friends. They had to chase their family members. I, I had a client once who said something that was really so bizarre for me. And again, after you've been doing this for almost 10 years, you think, you know, you hear everything and it's, you know, that. But this was so simple, but yet so bizarre. He goes, 
when I was growing up, you know, he goes, I can remember from the time I was sick and I'd have my own room and I'd be in my room a lot. He goes, my parents would always knock on the door and I would go answer the door. And he goes, they never walked in my room. Uh, I said, I go, I go, really? Are you, are you sure they never? He goes, I'm, I goes, I positive. They never walked into my room. They stayed on the other side of the doorway. And therefore, he always felt this sense that they didn't want to come in and engage with mm. him. So therefore, not. So they're a craving to belong. So they want to feel that others will chase them and seek them out. Um, their desire for attention is so strong that even if they're married to someone who is giving them a good deal of attention, their kid is screaming when somebody else starts to show attention to them and say, ooh, we can't let that pass that by. We can't pass that by. We have to have that too because I don't know if this one's going to last. You know, she may leave us or he may leave us. So yes, got to go, go after it. So therefore, and then they get confused because they're like, but I'm really happy at home. I'm, I'm getting that attention, but yet I can't stop if someone else is paying attention to me. Mm, yeah. um, you know, the next child that we have is the emotionally voided child. Now, this kid is one who has a very difficult time um, connecting emotionally with other people. I believe what I've seen in my practice is nine out of 10 men who come in this, uh, come here, have a low emotional IQ. And what I mean by that is they, they really, they can't identify their feeling beyond the fact that they're angry, they're afraid, they're sad, or they're happy. And even if they can identify those deeper emotions, they have a very difficult time expressing it because we're not supposed to express it. They've been taught somewhere along the line, you don't share your emotions, um, so therefore they don't do it. But worse yet, is when someone tries to be emotional with them, it causes their anxiety to rise, and therefore they want to shut that person down. You know, it's like, or, you know, it's not important. I don't know why you're bothering with that. It, you know, it's going to be okay, or they're going to try to fix it. Yeah. So that's what you have here with these people. So therefore, they've gotten the message somewhere along the line that emotions just are not important or perhaps that they're actually even dangerous. So they use sex and physical intimacy as a substitute for emotional intimacy. God designed us to be in relationships and the basics for that, the basis for that relationship, the foundation is emotional intimacy. And part of that of course is trust. And then we're supposed to take physical intimacy and sprinkle it in to support that. Well, men, for the most part, have it upside down. And we build relationships on physical intimacy. Let me show you how much I love you by how I touch you and I kiss you and how good I can make you feel. And then we'll sprinkle some emotional intimacy on top just to say, oh, look, see, I can do both. Right, yeah, yeah. You have yeah. a question? I, I felt like you're good. Well, no, so when you're talking about that, I mean, uh, we like to say in our ministry that 99% of the men that we deal with that are sexually addicted are emotionally stunted. And the only reason we say 99% is because even though I've never met anybody in that 1%, I hate to ever say 100% about anything. But <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I've never met a guy personally who's sexually addicted that is emotionally mature. 
there's an emotional stuntedness in him. And I think it's because of all the things you're talking about here. Early on in childhood and adolescence, there are these, these factors that play into like, like what you're talking about, this inner child, that these factors that play into skewing what God's design was for us to learn and grow in as children. God meant the family to be the environment in which children are raised, as the word says, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in, in this environment where there is emotional intimacy and there's proper touch and there's words of affirmation and acceptance and love. And, and when any one of those things gets out of whack, what I'm hearing you say is that has a huge profound impact on the emotional maturity that that man is going to develop. Yeah, I, you know what, I, I'm so pleased to hear you use the term emotional immaturity because that is what we're dealing with. And, you know, some of my peers get a little offended when I talk like that, but they're like, oh my gosh, you're shaming people. And I'm like, no, I'm not shaming. I'm telling you what the facts are and what it is. And I will, I will say this, of all the hundreds and hundreds of men I've worked with, and I bring that up, I've never had one that has turned and said to me, oh no, you're wrong. I, I'm, I'm not emotionally immature. They all agree with it. And when I say nine out of 10, I think the one, the, that one that I think of that may be, I think what he, what he does is he has such a desire to be emotionally attached. I mean, he wants it so much and he kind of demonstrates yeah. those sorts of attributes to be able, but he doesn't have the tools to be able to do it. Well, and the irony is if any one of those guys did actually turn to you and say, I'm not emotionally immature, they would have proven your point right then, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go ahead. What about the fifth kid? Okay, we're looking at the, the uh, need for control child. Okay, these are kids who grow up in very hectic and chaotic environments. Um, and they want, they want to seek control of their surroundings. And why? Because they believe this is the worldview that if I'm in control of things, I can prevent bad things from happening. Incorrect. It's not right. In fact, actually they're going to create more things that are going to be bad for them, especially when it comes to relationships, you know, with friends and peers and uh, loved ones. But, but that's what they're doing. That kid, again, where you're using, if you look at these children, and you look at what each of their um, rationales are for problem solving, you can see the level of immaturity in it. Sure. So therefore, again, the idea that, oh, you know what? I grew up in an environment that was completely out of control. Oh, if I control things, nothing bad will happen. I mean, it's like magical thinking. It just right. doesn't really exist. So therefore, but there are going to be times for, as an adult where, you know, they cannot control something. And when that happens, their anxiety is going to rise. And now you're going to see them run off and use sex as a distraction. Mm -hmm. um, the next one is the entitled kid. And the entitled kid is the one that I say is the most, it's the most dangerous of all. And the reason being because he just doesn't care. He's going to get what he wants when he wants it because everything else be damned. And growing up, these were individuals who felt that they were devalued as children and teenagers. Um, they lacked a voice. 
they they their desires their need didn't seem to matter to anyone and also they many cases they were falsely accused of things on a regular basis so therefore always seeming to get in trouble for things they didn't do so therefore they grow up with a sense that there's no justice in the world well they're going to find their own sense of justice justice so therefore they use sex as a reward for themselves i deserve this okay i deserve it that's their worldview with it um so when things don't go their way what they're going to be doing is they're going to wind up acting out yeah the the next child is called the inferior and the weak child now the kids grew up and they were conditioned to believe that they were weak and inferior to other boys or other girls and whether it be by their parents siblings peers maybe even other people in authority we hear lots of uh gym teachers and coaches who sit there and mock kids in front of other kids and other teachers too don't want to pick on gym teachers um but therefore they use sex in a very destructive way they are going to use it to feel empowered and they can feel empowered one or two ways one they will use sex to reinforce their sense of inferiority so therefore they're taking on a more submissive type of approach to sexual activity which still gives them a sense of power but they're really feeling like in a sense that i'm still controlling things or on the other side of the coin is that they want to overcome that sense of feeling weak by coming across as very strong and dominant so therefore they go down that thing so therefore their world view going down that pathway is you know i deserve to be used or i must use others right and that brings us to the ninth and the last child and this is the one that's most troubling of all of them and that is the early sexually stimulated and or abused child um as i write in my book when children um are exposed to pornography or sex in at an early age or sexually sexually abused it changes everything yeah their whole world is just turned upside down and so what happens is with these kids they either at a very young age they stumble across pornography or perhaps i had one client who his parents he could hear parents having sex in their bedroom right next to his every night and he heard it and it just caught it's going on for years and eventually just tuning into it and getting caught up in it and masturbating with it and so therefore there's many ways the kids can be exposed um but also through the uh, idea of sexual molestation and therefore with this this child's going to be looking at it as sex and they're going to say you know what sex is something that in most cases it's just a physical act it's not really you know there's nothing um godly about it it's just something you do and therefore i can use it to my benefit or i can use it because i feel dirty i feel bad and i can let people use me for it so again this is one that really we see people who wind up being tormented in many areas not just in the way they will use or not use sex but also in other parts of their lives too so that gives you that gives you a brief overview yeah and i think i think you might have skipped one the stressed oh, child right the stressed 
Oh, the I stress, missed the stress child. Stress child. Uh, and that really geez. stresses me out, Eddie, because I mean, I'm the stressed kid. Okay. So no, I'm just kidding. But, but we don't want to, we don't want to miss out on the stressed child. See, now you, now you know what those parents who have big families are like, right? right yeah. Sometimes they just kind of overlook that kid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So the stressed child, um, these are individuals who grew up in very um, anxious environments. They may have had a very anxious parent, your mom or a dad. Um, they, may have lived, they may have been in an environment where one of their siblings had a very serious uh, illness. Um, or maybe they were dealing with, you know, uh, something like Asperger's or whatever. And there was always a sense of there's something not right here in this environment, but it became an idea of stress. But what happens with many of these children as they go along, because their level of stress is a constant, after a while, they almost don't even recognize they are stressed. Mm-hmm. It's like it becomes, a, it, it's the normal for them. So, but it's not gone. They think it is. They think, oh, I'm fine. I've many clients who've come in and I'm sure you've seen, you know, these guys too. And you look at them and, you know, talk about, hey, so tell me about your anxiety and stress. I have none. But yet you could see it in the body language. You could see it in their actions, you know, the twitches and all of this. And, and you need to say to them and let them understand over time as they're going through, you know, their uh, counseling that, hey, guess what? Your anxiety really didn't go away. You just did a really good job trying to, you know, repress it. Yeah. But, but it's leaked out very many, in many, many ways. So therefore, at this point, they discovered that sex is really a great way to soothe their anxiety. And, and they're right about that because sex does help to relax us. But that's not the way sex was supposed to be used. That's not God's design to use it as a stress buster. Yeah, so uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I would love for you to just help the listeners know, okay, once they have are starting to get an understanding of, of like their inner child, what are the, what are the key steps to moving forward to, um, to creating better health, to healing from these old wounds and getting to a place of wellness? Um, and then we want to wrap up with letting people know how they can get the, get the book. Okay. Yeah, um, basically what we're going to start out with, see, the, the nine kids, there's a good concept for, be, for people to be able to identify with. But what's really important is to discover what are the core emotional tri- triggers that activate that child. And I list in the book, I list at the end of each chapter, anywhere from six to eight different potential emotional triggers. So what we're going to be doing is we're walking through each of these kids, let's say somebody identifies four, we're going to then say, okay, so what are the emotional triggers that are associated with this child that impact your kid? And they will go through that. And then it's like, okay, why do you think that is? What do you think that that's your trigger? Let's say, for example, you feel invisible. Okay. Now you're back to the the child, the uh, unnoticed child. I feel invisible. Okay. Well, can you recall any time in the past where you may have felt something like that and you know they'll sit and they'll ponder and it may take them a little while to journal we did a lot of journaling to get done here with this and they come back and they're like hey you know what i do remember i remember there were times when you know i was the kid standing on the side there of the playground everybody else is playing and nobody's engaging me nobody's seeking me out in that 
in that epic. And I did. I felt very invisible at that time. So therefore, yeah. if something were to happen today, and that's the second step, second step is looking to say, okay, let's be very mindful of what are negative events that happen in our daily life. And then recognizing, do any of the, does that negative event, if there are emotions involved with that, that are core emotional triggers for my kid. So if I slow down just for one second. So let's say I have six different core emotional triggers and an event happens and one of those triggers match up with the event. I then need to go to my kid and say, hey, you know what? I think you may feel invisible right now. What's going on here? What, 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 is that what's happening? What's in the storage unit? What, what, what's the pain back there? Because see, we also want to teach them how to be able to sit with emotional discomfort and understand it's not going to kill them. And then be able to, after they sit with that pain, to take it back and say, okay, I'm not going to go your route. Your route would be we're just going to run away and distract ourselves. Instead, I'm going to use wide mind, and I'm going to rationalize what just happened. And this event that just happened now, that you're correlating to something in the past, they don't measure up. They're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. They may feel that way to you, but let me explain why they're different. And then with that, now I can get to a point where I can say, okay, you know, that trigger is not what it's supposed to be. It's something else. And now I can go and I can make a healthy decision. You know, do I run away or do I confront what's just happened by with reality? Because again, if I tell people what you feel and what is real are usually very, very different. Mm -hmm. So th those are basically the steps real fast to yeah. what yeah. we try to do. So, so how can people get a copy of the book going deeper? So where can they go to get the book and what, what uh, other any sites or, or resources that you'd want to um, share with our listeners? Sure. Um, one, they can go to www.interchild-sexaddiction.com. Again, that's interchild-sexaddiction.com. There you can order the book. It'll actually take you to Amazon. But also on there is a 12-week online recovery program mm -hmm. that walks you through the whole inner child program that that people can uh, purchase and again I did something that was very cost efficient because my my thought this is what I have is a ministry and I want to help people who don't maybe don't have those specialty counselors in their area and I want to I want to make sure that they have the same sort of care that most people can get. You can also get the book at Barnes and Noble uh, online, or if you go to the store, they'll order it for you and any other really, any other um, online book outlet. Yeah. Well, Eddie, thanks for the work that you put into this. And uh, thanks again for being on the program and letting our listeners know about this resource that, you know, one, one of the things that you were talking about that I think is beautiful and, and it made me think about this is that the the amazing thing is as you actually do this inner child work, you become a, you become mature as an adult. But to me, the ironic thing is you then have an actual healthy inner child, because I do believe 
Jesus even said, listen, unless you come like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. There is an innocence that's reclaimed that is childlike, not childish, but childlike. And so I think it's, it's ironic that as we, as we grow and heal and mature emotionally, and this, this former receptacle of pain and hurt can then turn into a beautiful repository of grace and truth and love and beauty, right? Absolutely. See, we're giving people an opportunity to provide nurturing to a child that they never received. Yeah. And, and that's what helps them in their emotional maturity and their growth in that area. Yeah. Well, thanks again for being with us. We enjoyed having you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Anytime. Yeah. And listeners, of course, we're always glad that you're with us and we look forward to seeing you back here again next week. Please, if you've got questions or just want to have some more help along your journey, reach out to us. You can reach us at puresexradio.com or on social media at Pure Sex Radio. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.